you would, take a copy of God's Word uh, this morning. Uh, you can grab a pew Bible there in front of you if you didn't walk in with one this morning. Turn to page 992 if you're using a pew Bible. Those of you that brought one, if you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this morning we're looking at verses 8 through 13 as we continue walking through 1 Timothy. This morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And why don't we pray before we hear God's Word read this morning and preached. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we're rebellious and sinful people. We are stiff-necked and that we have trouble submitting to authority. We also confess this morning that You are an authority who is worthy of our submission. And so we pray that in our midst this morning that Your Spirit would stir, that You would make our hearts to bow within us. That You would help us to look to You with the eyes of faith. That we would know that as we hear the Word read and preached this morning, that we are hearing from our Sovereign King. And that we would respond as obedient servants to Your praise and to Your glory. We pray this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, the risen King. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me say at the very outset, 
The church needs godly men serving as deacons. We need qualified men in the office of deacon who see it as their calling in life. Men who understand the importance of this office and are content to make it their life's labor. The office of deacon is not, and it never has been, simply a stepping stone to the office of elder. It is not that, it's needed. What I want to do this morning is look at the office of deacon. We're going to do it under four points this morning. Why, what, who, and why not? Why, what, who, and why not? First, why? Why deacons? Well, to understand that, we have to go to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, we see there the very first deacons. In Acts 6, the people of God select seven from their number, and the apostles then lay hands upon those deacons and ordain them to the office of deacon. Why? Why did they do this? I told the diaconate just a couple of weeks ago as I was doing some training with our diaconate, I had told them that in the PCA's, our denomination, the PCA's Book of Church Order, one of my favorite parts, and look, there are a lot of parts to have favorites of, uh, but one of my favorite parts is the description of the office of deacon. And the PCA's Book of Church Order says the office of deacon is an office of sympathy and service. Sympathy and service. I love that. Sympathy and service. Why deacons? Deacons exist to extend sympathy and service. One of the perennial problems for the church and the church's ministry is that it is continually threatened. There is constantly these things going on within and from without that are seeking to disrupt the church and to disrupt its ministries. And the deacon stands as a servant in the household of God to mitigate disruption by extending sympathy and service. Mitigating disruption by extending sympathy and service. Let's consider why the diaconate in Acts 6. Well, in Acts 6, a conflict had erupted in the church there in Jerusalem between the widows in that church. Why? Well, widows, especially in that day, needed care for, and especially widows that had converted to the Christian faith because they had left all of their structures. They had left all of the stability that they had had. And now they were identifying themselves with Christ and with the Christian church, and they had nothing to fall back upon. And so the church needed to take care of these widows. The problem was that within the church in Jerusalem, you had two different sets of widows within all of the widows. 
You had those widows that were Greek-speaking, and you had those widows that were Aramaic-speaking. The Greek-speaking widows were not receiving help from the church in the same way that the Aramaic-speaking widows were receiving help from the church there in Jerusalem. Most likely, the Greek-speaking widows were part of the diaspora. They uh, had lived around the Mediterranean world, and when their husbands had died, they thought, you know, in the last couple of years of my life, I'm going to move to the holy city, and there I will spend my last years in the holy city. And so you can see how this could happen, how the disruption could occur. The newcomers, some thought, shouldn't expect the same care as those who have been among the church for some time. The Aramaic-speaking widows. And so the Greek widows were suffering for it. And the result was a disruption. The joy and the unity of the church was being threatened. And so the church acted. Apostles or the elders then recognized that they had to commit themselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer and that they couldn't be pulled away from those two essential functions. But what they recognized was there is an essential thing that needs to be addressed here. Mercy. It can't just be brushed to the side. It can't just be forgotten in the household of God. And so, the apostles had the congregation, the people there in Jerusalem, the believers, elect from their own number seven men who then the apostles laid their hands upon, ordaining them to this office of deacon. It's a perpetual office in the church. Deacons are not junior elders, they're needed. Why? Because joy and unity are essential to the church's life together. And where there is need in our body life together, joy and unity is threatened. So we need, help. We need deacons. That's why deacons exist. The outcome of appointing these seven deacon, deacons in Acts 6 is illustrative when Luke has just finished speaking about these deacons being ordained, he says immediately there in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6, he says this, And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. He's saying, make no mistake. The mercy ministry of deacons in the church is very much tied to the fruitfulness of the church. As we take care of those within, the word more readily goes without, and the number of disciples multiplies. When there is joy and unity in here, there is blessing for the world out there. And deacons exist for this. Second, what? What ultimately is the ministry of the diaconate? And I would say it boils down to this. It is simply an extension of Christ's ministry. It's simply an extension of Christ's ministry of mercy. 
Christ said in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Diakonos, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Serve is the same root word that we get deacon from, that we get diaconate from. The deacon is a servant, even as Christ was a servant. In fact, Christ is called a deacon in Romans chapter 15. He is the uber deacon. He is the great deacon. He is the great servant. And the deacon is simply modeling his life upon Christ as the servant. He is extending the ministry, the ministry of the mercy of Christ. You see this throughout the earthly ministry of Christ that as he goes along the way, he is extending mercy to those that have need. And as he comes across someone in his midst that has need, he extends mercy to him. He extends sympathy and service. He cared not only for the souls of men and women, but he also cared for their bodies. And his acts of mercy also testified to the truth of his word. That what he said was actually true. And so mercy ministries within the church, they show our care for the person. And they show that what we speak, that what we have proclaimed about the gospel and about this love and this grace of our Savior, that it's actually true. Look at our love for one another. It's true. The deacon leads the way in this as they extend sympathy and service to, as our book of church order rightly says, to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. They're just extending the mercy of Christ. To those who are sick, to those who are bodily infirm, to those that are dealing with chronic pain, to those who are widowed, to those that are suffering from mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, those that are dealing with trying children, those that feel marginalized in the body of Christ in the church, to those that are lonely, to those that are discouraged and depressed. As our book of church order says, to any and all who have need. To any and all who have need. The body of Christ is to look like that picture in Acts 2 where it says that they all gave to one another so that there was not one in their midst that had need. That we so come together as the household of God, as the family of Christ, that as we minister to one another with our gifts and with our resources and with our abilities and with our time and with our very lives, that there's not one that exists in this congregation that has need. And the deacons are those who are to lead in this. Third, who? 
Who are these deacons? Well, that is our text this morning. Paul gives the qualifications for a deacon. They are very similar to the qualifications that he gives for the elder. The one marked difference is that Paul says of elders that they are to be apt to teach. He does not say that about deacons here. That is not one of their qualifications. Because their office is one of sympathy and service. Now that does not mean that deacons don't ever teach or that they can never teach. We see Stephen and we see Philip who were two of these very first seven deacons. They were men who clearly taught. They knew the Word and they taught it. Leading the diaconate through a wonderful book on the deacon that I've used before by Cornelius Van Dam. And he comments about this and says this, In other words, the ministry of serving tables was more than just providing the physical necessities of life. It was also a means to include those who may have felt marginalized, giving the necessary reassurance that they truly belong to the community of saints. Giving such reassurance would have meant ministering the Word of God to them. That is, though a deacon does not have to be apt to teach, What happens when a deacon comes and he ministers to a person bodily is regularly he has to bring the Gospel to bear in that context. He has to know the Word. And so needs to bring that Word to bear upon their souls even as he is ministering to their bodies. And so he teaches. Again, group a few of these together like it did for elders, but seven qualifications here if I group a few together. First, a deacon must be dignified, Paul says. That is, he is to be a man that is worthy of respect. Again, we saw this with elders. Character matters more than anything else for leadership in the church. Remember the first time this hit me that leadership in the church is so... Vastly different from leadership outside the church. I was in seminary and I was in a class and a seminary professor was teaching the class. He was the chairman of his department at the seminary and he started talking about one of the other professors in his department. And he talked about hiring that man for the job that he had as professor at the seminary. And he said this man, as he applied to this position of professor at the seminary, he said, we had all kinds of applicants, and there were other applicants that were better educated. There were other applicants that had better credentials. There were other applicants that had better experience. But he said, I hired him. And he said, I hired him because he had character. I can teach everything else. It's character that matters more than anything else in the leadership of the church, and God's people. He must be dignified. Second, he's not to be double-tongued. If he is double-tongued, if he is a liar, he could make a promise to a hurting person, giving them the comfort of upcoming relief, and then not provide for it. And how awful would that be? No, deacons need to be men of their word that when they say something, that person can take it to the bank so that there are not seeds sown in the congregation of distrust of those who are to care for their bodily needs. Third, 
He's not to be addicted to much wine. That is, they must be men who show self-control. Drinking isn't forbidden, but excessive drinking is. If you allow me here, I just want to briefly address this, uh, because I think it's needed in our day in a Reformed church in a college town. Drinking alcohol is not bad. Listen, Jesus drank wine. Sometimes we can be more spiritual than the Bible itself by putting rules upon ourselves that are not in the Scriptures. Drinking is not wrong. It's fine. But I want to caution you. It seems to me, at least, that there is a growing trend, especially among young men, especially in young men in Reformed circles, where they're drinking too much and glorying in their drinking too much. And that concerns me. It's all under the rubric of freedom in Christ. And look, I would be the first, and I am happy to be the first, to encourage you to walk in the freedom of Christ. I want you to walk in all of the freedom of Christ. We are to be distinct from the world. We're to be self-controlled. Especially officers in the church. And drinking too much and glorying in your drinking too much looks far too much like the world. Fourth, deacons are not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Of course, the reason here is obvious. Deacons are often handling finances within the church here at URC. Our diaconate has its own separate fund. We give to this fund at our Christmas offering. Some of you give to that fund throughout the year. And they have this separate fund outside of the general offering whereby they take these monies, they have responsibility for these monies to give those monies where there is need. How incredibly awful would it be if they who had responsibility for this money used it for their own self-serving purposes? Not greedy. Fifth, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. A deacon is not just to be a good man. He is not just to be that kind of man that you look, like, look at and say, oh, he's just always kind. He's just a moral man. He just serves wherever he goes. That's not enough. He must be a man who treasures the gift of salvation, who holds that gift of salvation, who lives by that gift of salvation. The office will often require the need to communicate the saving truth to the hurting and to the needy. But to do so, the deacon has to believe it. They have to revel in it. They have to live it. So that the person believes it. So that they know how to bring it to bear. They have to be men who are sound in doctrine. Because you see, deacons teach. But they don't have to be apt to teach. They're always teaching. 
It just may not be up front. Our book of church orders says it this way, it is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church. You see, it's not simply the deacon's job to have an eye out for the needy. It's not simply the deacon's job to extend the mercy of Christ within the congregation. It is all of our jobs. The entire church, every member of the church. But the deacon is to set the bar. He is to model it before the congregation. And then he is to encourage and exhort the congregation to use its gifts. To use its abilities, to use its resources, to use its time, to use its energy to minister mercy to people within it. He's teaching, either with words or by example. So they must hold the faith with a clear conscience. Sixth, like elders, they are to prove themselves blameless. Prove themselves before they come to the office. Let a man live these things before he takes office. Office doesn't make the man. He must already show that he is such a man. Seventh, their homes are to be well-ordered. Their homes are to be well-ordered. Verses 11 and 12. Deacons' wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Why the emphasis here upon the deacon's wife? Is it because she is also being ordained to the office? Well, the answer is, of course, no. He is being ordained to the office, not she. But part of it has to be at least that he is involved in all kinds of sensitive things within the body of Christ. So he is privy to knowledge and sometimes that knowledge will sift through him to his wife. And so she is not to be a slanderer. She is not to be a gossip. She is to be well thought of. But I think even more likely, the reason is that the deacon's wife could at times be called to assist him in the work that he has been called to do. He's dealing with mercy issues. And some and a lot of those mercy issues are bodily issues. And so it makes no sense and it is unwise for a deacon to go by himself or to just to go with other men to go and minister to a woman who has bodily issues. There's wisdom in taking another women, women or other women and his wife with him to minister. I'll do more on this in just a little bit. He must also, as we saw with elders, be a one-woman kind of man. This doesn't mean single men can't serve. Rather, it means that this is a man of sexual purity. So incredibly important as he is ministering to needy people. He must be a father who exercises servant leadership in his home. If he has children, his children are to respect him because he parents them well. He has overall a well-ordered home. 
We need such men. We need such men serving for the good of the church and for the glory of Christ. We need them. Why, what, who, and now why not? Why not women ordained as deacons or women ordained as deaconesses? I ask that question because there are some that will go to this passage and will make the argument from this passage that women should be ordained in the office of deacon or in the office, a separate office, but an equal office called deaconess. If you look back at verse 11, where many of you are using the ESV, it has their wives there. There are two things that you need to know about that. The first is, is that there is not in the text. There is no there there. The SV editors have made an interpretive decision here by placing, placing there there. Now, I think it's the right decision, and it's needed, but it's an interpretation. The second thing you need to know is that word that we have there in the ESV that says their wives, wives there, it can mean wives, but the same word also means women. And so there are those that have argued in the church that Paul has in view here women who are ordained as deacons here. That's why Paul, so the argument goes, says likewise. He's addressed deacons and then he says likewise Women deacons or deaconesses here. So the argument goes, he's speaking about ordained female deacons or ordained deaconesses. That's possible, but I'm convinced, along with your ESV editors, along with the denomination that we belong to, the PCA, that the ESV has it correct here. Why? Well, the flow of thought would be disrupted if that's what Paul was doing here in the text, where he's talking about deacons through verse 11, but then he stops to address women deacons or deaconesses, and then he picks up with deacons again in verse 12. In fact, it makes perfect sense that in verse 11, he introduces the wife of the deacon, and then he continues that thought in verse 12 as he goes to speak of the deacon's faithfulness to his wife, and then managing his own household. In addition, it would be an odd word that he used here if he was speaking about an official office of deaconess or women deacons. He could have used deaconess here, but he doesn't. He uses a general term, women, wives. And if he was addressing an office of deaconess that had the same responsibility as the deacons, then why would he spend multiple verses on the deacon, but simply one verse on the deaconess? And you take all of that together and some other things that we don't have time for this morning, and it seems pretty clear that he's speaking of deacons' wives, not a separate office of deaconess, ordained office of women deacons. Some have rightly said, well, what is Paul doing when he's talking about offices in the church? Paul is establishing order and he's concerned about authority in the church as he's talking about elders and deacons. 
And so it makes sense that when he talks about elders that he restricts it to men in the church. He makes it very clear in his writings that it is men who, by God's ordering, are to be the head of their homes and are to be head in the church. And so, as the office of elder is one of authority, it makes sense that he would say men need to fill the office of elder. But the office of deacon, it's an office of sympathy and service. And so maybe women can serve in the office of deacon. But it's an office. An office has authority. And Paul is outlining here that it is to be for men, the husband of one wife. They're exercising authority as they instruct. They're exercising authority as they encourage the congregation to exercise liberality in its serving and its giving. So why do we have deaconesses at URC is the question for some of you that are new to URC. Well, it's not deaconess in the sense that some are arguing from this text. We don't ordain women, though godly, though incredibly gifted, we don't ordain them to office here at URC. The term deaconess, just like the term deacon, simply means servant. A deaconess is a female servant. The term itself isn't wrong to use. Female servant, deaconess. It's not wrong to use. I'd argue, and put all my cards on the table, I think it's very confusing for us to use it. But it's not wrong to use it. It just means female servant. It simply has a long history of use at URC. It has a long history of use in the PCA. There's a denomination that joined with the PCA back in 1983, the RPCES, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, and the Reformed RPCES, I'm not going to say the whole thing again, RPCES, uh, those churches that came in, they had deaconesses. And so, almost all of those churches that came in still have deaconesses today, but not ordained. Their function and role is to assist the deacons in their work. Our book of church order allows for this in the PCA where it says the session has the right to appoint godly men and women to assist the deacons. In their work. And that's what we're doing. Why? Because it's clear that as Paul knows in this text, women need to assist deacons in their work. Because as we stated, they are meeting different bodily mercy needs in the congregation, often involving women. And that can be sensitive. And there are gifts to be utilized there for the benefit of the body. But again, we have to make it crystal clear this is the deacon's work. And we need deacons. We need deacons who will lead. Understand this to be their life's calling. 
who are strong horses pulling the mercy wagon because they've been called by God and they've been ordained by the church to His service. And then they employ men and women to assist them in their mercy-extending ministry. In fact, this is what I believe we see happening in the New Testament letters when Phoebe, for instance, is called in Romans 16 where she is called a deaconess. We're told that she was a deaconess of the church at Centray. It's clear that she was in some sort of service position in that church, the church that she was part of in Centre, recognized her in this position, but she wasn't an ordained deacon. But she's celebrated and she's recognized. Why? Because Phoebe served well. Much like what Paul is saying here about the wives of deacons in this text. Because of the nature, because of the ministry that Women are needed and are essential within the mercy ministries of the, of the church. It is a foolish diaconate that doesn't employ women in the church to meet some of these mercy needs. All under their leadership. Encouraging all the gifts of the body under their leadership to come to bear. In fact, I think Paul gives us further insight into this in 1 Timothy 5. Just a couple of chapters over where he talks about the widows in the church and putting the widows on a list. How do you determine what widows should be supported by the church? They go on this list. But what's really fascinating for our passage is that as he does so, he gives qualifications for these women to be included on the list. And one of those qualifications is that they are women who are meeting the mercy needs of people in the congregation. They are in some kind of unordained mercy ministry serving group in the church assisting the deacons in their responsibility. Two things, I'd argue, have to be maintained clearly here. The office of deacon is for men. Again, let's remind ourselves of the context. What Paul is doing here in this part of 1 Timothy is that he is ordering the church in Ephesus. He's helping Timothy to grasp how can a church function rightly? How can it be rightly ordered? And so he lays out what it looks like. And God in creation ordered it this way, Timothy has argued. He has placed men in that place of authority both in the home and in the church not because they are more gifted, not because they are more godly, not because they have more abilities, but simply because He ordered it this way in creation. And so it is ordered this way in the church and it's ordered this way in the home. And so deacons are to be men. Deacons have the authority and the responsibility for extending the mercy of Christ in the church. But equal or secondary to that, the wise and faithful diaconate is employing all the gifts in the body of Christ. Not half of the body, but all of the body. And it knows it needs the assistance of godly men and women in meeting all of the mercy needs within our context. Four quick applications. First, 
said this last week to you men in this room, I'll say it to you again this week, regarding a different office, we need men who aspire to the office of deacon. For the right reasons, we need men who understand the importance of this office and are content to make it their life's labor for the benefit of the body, helping to maintain the joy and the unity of URC so that we are a blessing to one another and so that we are a blessing to those outside. We need it. Second, members of URC, you need to encourage qualified men. You need to encourage them. Some of you, that means your husbands, or your brothers, or your fathers, or your sons, your friends in this congregation. Look, I understand it takes a toll when you've got somebody in your family and leadership in the church. Often it feels like the whole family has signed up for something. Hence, Paul is addressing deacons' wives here. But it's needed. This is part of what we do in the body. We need men who are godly servants, who are marked by these characteristics, and they need to be encouraged to it. Third, women and men of URC, we need you ministering in cooperation with the deacons under their leadership. So many of you have done this well over the years. You have given incredible amounts of time and energy and your talents and your resources to ministering to the mercy needs of those in this congregation. Just think about this last week and some of our women that with the funeral we had this week for Jim, we're so busy about all of the organization of the funeral arrangements and getting things set and in the right order and helping us as a congregation to extend mercy. And we have a funeral this week. We need to be people that men and women are extending mercy all over the place here. It should be that it's impossible for somebody to be in our midst to be hurting, to be needy, and to be looked past. That should be impossible. Because you won't let it happen. It should be impossible. We're going to sing at the end of the service. Uh, John gives me trouble about this. He says, every time I give you this option, Jason, you choose it. I said, I'm going to every time. Uh, you'll be singing this hymn at my funeral. Um, we are God's people. I love it. You see, he put us together. He put us together to minister to one another. We who have received the love of Christ are so to be Filled with that loving mercy of Christ. 
that you can't be here and not be touched by it. That you can't go to people outside the church and say, I have needs. Because they're so being met by here. We are God's people. And we've been bound not only to Him, but to one another. Lastly, ordained deacons, I am so thankful for you. Some of you in the room, Brad Lankeet, Tom Spaulding. Who else do we have here? John Lane, John Ehrlich. I'm sure I've missed a couple. So many of you have served so faithfully for so long, and we need it. You need to keep serving. What this church doesn't need is for you to simply show up for a meeting. Shane Zyderveen, or to cast a vote, or to simply respond to needs in the congregation. We need you to be so gripped with the love of Christ that you model mercy before us, that you exhort us to extend mercy. That you encourage and train and equip us to extend mercy. That's what we need. Where you're leading the way. We need you. And mercy doesn't simply happen. And oh, what a promise is given to you at the end of this passage. Verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? A good standing for themselves. For those who serve well. And what is not an easy calling? It requires time. It requires energy. It requires patience. It requires perseverance. It requires dealing with some of the same people and the same problems over and over and over. It means often having the, the mantle or the responsibility or the burden of others upon your shoulders as you're helping to carry their burden with them. It can be exhausting. And yet what Paul promises here is a beautiful promise you will gain a good standing. That is, you will be well respected by your brothers and sisters in Christ. But even more importantly, you will be honored by your God. What greater promise could there be? Honored by your siblings in Christ. And honored by God. We need, need good, faithful deacons as we extend the mercy of Christ 
act in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the deacons that have served here over the years. We thank you even in remembrance this week as we celebrate Hank Huber's homegoing. And he served as a faithful deacon in this church for a half century. We thank you for those that have come, for those that are here. And, O oh Lord, we pray that you would add to the number of godly good men that are serving this church by leading us in the extending of the mercy of our Savior. And, O oh Father, we would be a congregation that is so touched by the love of our Savior that mercy oozes out of our pores, that we are quick to meet one another's needs, that there is not a person that has bodily need here, that has need for prayer, that has need for finances, that has need for friendship, that has need for belonging, because we are so quick to have eyes for the needy around us. We pour out ourselves for one another in the love of Christ. Grow us in, us in this, we pray. Your glory and praise as we live as your people together. In Christ's holy name, amen.